turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Verses 8 through 16. Initially, I had thought that this morning we would be in chapter 18, but in light of the fact that next Sunday we plan to recognize, Lord willing, uh, Andy and JT as, um, as elders here at Edgewood, it seemed that uh, some of the content in chapter 18 in terms of Moses and some of the elders of the people uh, being used to lead and instruct and guide the Israelites would be more fitting and appropriate for what we do next week. So we're going to go back and look at 17, 8 through 16, which is uh, a fairly straightforward passage, although it introduces a, a new feature into the wilderness wandering. So follow along with me as I read. And what we want to consider as we're reading this passage, if, if, you, uh, if you have the little outline that we have at the back, your, your outline probably reads something like this for the big idea, the Lord guarantees victory for his people. I don't know if that's specific enough. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call an audible and say that we might want to think through this passage this way, uh, to say not just simply that the Lord guarantees victory for his people, but that the Lord is with his people in their battle with the enemy. All right, so listen as you hear God's word and as you read it yourself to see how that comes through in this passage. The Lord is with his people in their battle with the enemy. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. This is God's word to us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer again? Father, do for your people what only you can do through the message, the teaching of your word. Would your Holy Spirit come and work on our hearts? Would you give us comfort if afflicted, would you give us conviction where we are too comfortable? Help us, Father, to recognize and to see that your presence continues to be and will always remain with your people no matter what they encounter in this life, and that you will remain true to your people because you will remain true to your word to bring us safely home. We thank you that we have already seen in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ what will one day be our experience as well. And so we ask that you would help us to rest in the assurance and confidence that at the end of the day, you by your Spirit will bring all of your people safely home for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Lord is with his people in their battle with the enemy. <clears throat> The new feature that this passage introduces is that up to this point, we've had three episodes, uh, one with the, uh, the lack of water in chapter, what was that, 15? The latter part of chapter 15, where the people can't find water, and when they do find water, it's bitter. The second one being the lack of food, which God provides through the miraculous provision of manna. And then in chapter 17, last week, Again, the lack of water which God provides miraculously through the rock. In each one of those episodes, 
you have the conflict essentially arising over the need, the physical needs that the people have, and the Lord showing that he will be faithful to provide for them if they will simply trust him and if they'll walk in obedience. Much of that challenge and those tests in those three episodes, we could say it for in one way or another, were essentially internal tests. That is, everything that they were experiencing, they were experiencing in their life together. In this episode, in the battle with Amalek, this is the first, since they have come out of Egypt, this is the first external threat that the people have encountered. Another thing that changes in this episode is not only now do we have a threat or a hostile enemy from the outside creating trouble and threatening the life of God's people, but this is also the first time where God does not just sovereignly, singularly provide a way of deliverance. In this episode, God provides victory for his people, but he does it through the work of Moses and Joshua, or more specifically through the work of Joshua. So just trying to get a, get a grasp or a foothold on what this passage has to teach us, we're going to try to communicate three main ideas, hopefully that we're drawing from the text itself. Number one is just by simply making the observation that God's people will encounter hostile forces on their journey home. Right? That's a given. It's a certainty. God's people will encounter hostile forces on their journey home. Number two, that God's people are secure in his power and in his purpose. God's people are secure in his power and in his purpose. And number three, we see at the end of the passage that the enemy of God's people is the enemy of God himself. All of these things, well, the first point might, might not be so encouraging, it helps to mute the surprise when we do encounter hostility. But at least verse points two and three should be very encouraging. God's people will encounter hostile forces on their journey home. Number two, God's people are secure in his power and purpose. And number three, the enemy of God's people is the enemy of God. So, the hostility that Israel encounters. We don't get a lot of information here as to what brought this encounter about, what it was that led to this battle or this fight. There's a very interesting statement that is made later in Deuteronomy where a, where a little bit more light is shed on what happens here. You don't need to turn there right now, but I'll read it for you. Listen and hear this. Whereas Exodus just says that Amalek came and fought against Israel, and then it proceeds to tell in short order how the people responded to that fight or that uh, offensive, in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18, we read this. Moses says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. So he's referring to this event in Exodus 17. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. And he did not fear God. Now, it's the latter part of that description in Deuteronomy 25 that, that is particularly interesting, at least in my mind. One, that when you take Exodus 17 and when you take the additional information that we're given in Deuteronomy 25, this is not a typical clash of forces where Amalek assembles her forces and goes out to, to face Israel and whatever forces that she can muster. But rather, this is, this is underhanded. Without any warning or any provocation, Amalek approaches Israel, and according to Deuteronomy 25, approaches Israel when she is weak and tired and frail. And in her weakness and in her frailty, the Amalekites proceed not to attack them head-on, but to attack them at their weakest spot from the rear where the weakest people would have been straggling along in the journey. Do you see? So here's a classic example of the, fa of the fact that God's people 
are where they are. They're in the region of Rephidim because God has brought them there. This was not their idea. This was not the path that they would have chosen. God has brought them there. They don't have any grand designs for this region of Rephidim. They're just hoping to get home. They're hoping that they'll survive the wilderness. They're trying to mind their own business. All, all that they have to do, all that they can barely muster, is the amount of energy and strength it takes to focus on surviving. Little less, or less so, even conquering or advancing. They're just trying to keep their heads above water. And here comes an enemy unprovoked, for no reason other than that they're there and they for some reason view Israel to be a threat and they take advantage of God's people. But it's not just that they attack them because they are weak and they see an opportunity perhaps, but Deuteronomy 25 says that they attacked Israel in her weakness because they had no fear of God. There's a spiritual element at work in this, as there always is. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities that are in the air, unseen. The conflict takes the appearance or takes the shape or the form of physical, visible conflict or relational conflict, or hostilities that exist that way. But lying behind it all is the fact that so long as God has a people for himself in this world, there will be people who hate God, and because they hate God, they will hate God's people. Listen to what Jesus himself says in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Because of what the world hates you? The world hates you simply because you're not the world. It is no more complicated than that. The world hates you because it hates God. And because you are a work of God, the world hates anything that represents or signifies what God is doing. Listen, the, the point is simply this. This is not to create. Don't misunderstand, all right? This is not to create sort of the uh, uh, woe is us sort of martyr complex, right? Everything that bad that happens to us in life happens because, well, nobody likes us. That's, that's not what we're saying here. There are ways and plenty of times in Scripture where the Lord makes it abundantly clear that one of the signs or demonstrations of His goodness and His generosity, even His grace in this world order, is that He has given us ways and people and things, blessings, that we can enjoy. But we don't want to minimize the realization that this is just one example among many where the Scriptures make it abundantly clear if you are one of the people of God, you are to expect conflict from those who are not the people of God. It ought not be a surprise to us when people do not find our convictions particularly attractive when they find them repulsive. It ought not surprise us when simply sharing our faith is considered to be offensive, demeaning, damaging, disrespectful. This is just the way that the world works. This whole system because of sin 
is broken and disordered, and more than just being broken and disordered, it is an active rebellion against the Creator and King. The question that ought to be on our minds then is being able to strike this balance where on the one hand it's sort of like what Peter says. If you're going to suffer, well don't suffer as a thief or as a cheat or as a deplorable kind of person. Make sure that you're suffering for the right reason. Make sure that you're suffering because you have been marked out and identified with Christ. If in your Christian life, you never find your life running into conflict with the way that this world operates, you ought to pause and ask yourself, am I living life as one of God's people? Because I should expect this world to push back against my desires and my inclinations and my pursuits so long as they belong to God. But then at the same time, ask yourself, when you do find conflict and opposition, God help us, Lord, are we suffering, are we encountering opposition because we are suffering for Christ or simply because we're jerks? Right? There's, there's nothing good about being a jerk at the workplace and having people not like you and then trying to chalk that up to people ridiculing you because you're a Christian. No, it may be that you're a lousy co-worker. It may be that you're just unbearable to be around. That's not suffering for Christ. That's suffering for your jerkiness. Don't suffer for being a jerk. There is plenty for us to suffer in serving Christ. And if we're going to suffer, let it be for that. Number two. Although God's people... Whoa. Let me try to back off a little bit there. Sorry, I adjusted my mic because it felt like it was coming loose. Although God's people were not expecting this conflict, were caught unawares, the fact of the matter is, is that in spite of all appearances, that they remain secure according to His power and to His purpose. One of the things that we need to do right up front is to, is to take note of the fact that even though much of the action, so to speak, in terms of the, the, the actual account of the conflict is going, to, is going to be relayed through the actions of Joshua and Moses, there are indications throughout this brief little encounter that show, okay, yes, Moses and Joshua are responding in their respective ways, but ultimately... This is not Moses and Joshua who are bringing deliverance for God's people. This is God delivering His people through Moses and Joshua. So, for example, let me give you just three, I think it's three, let me give you three indications from the context. Number one, notice that in response, verse 9, Moses says, after he tells Joshua to choose men and go out, he says, Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. The staff of God, you remember from last week, the same staff that struck the Nile and turned it to blood, the same staff that struck the rock and caused water to come out, I'm going to go with that staff in my hand to a high place where I can watch and overlook the significance of Moses taking the staff of God in his hand is that the staff signifies God's presence and God's power in this event. The second thing that we see is that there's an odd sort of way in which it's evident that the outcome of the battle does not depend so much on what's happening with Joshua and the soldiers down below, but what's happening with Moses up on the hilltop. 
right? So long as Moses has his hand or hands, we don't really know what was going on. Is he holding the staff? Is he, well, don't know. But so long as he has his hands up, Joshua and the men are winning. But when the hands and the arms get tired and they begin to droop and they drop, then mysteriously, the Amalekites are winning. You get the distinct impression, more than impression, but you get the distinct idea that the outcome of that battle is being governed by something that exists outside of the battle, right? Raised hands. And then the last thing that we can point to is that when the battle is over, while we're told in verse 13 that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, in verse 15... Moses builds an altar and he names it not Joshua is a conqueror. He names it the Lord. Yahweh is my banner. The Lord, in other words, is our rallying point. The Lord is the one who signals and directs and leads his people into battle. All of these things, and we could add a couple more, but all three of these little features of the story are there so that we know in no uncertain terms that while Moses and Joshua have a distinct role to play, nevertheless, the ultimate outcome depends on the Lord. One of the things, if we can broaden this out a little bit in terms of how this sort of finds its way, this, this idea of Moses and Joshua acting, but the Lord ultimately being the one securing the victory, is to think in terms of salvation itself. Up to this point, in terms of finding salvation, being delivered from their bondage, their slavery in Egypt, God did all of the work. Israel was unable to free themselves from Egypt. God, by his signs and wonders, by his power, he brings them out. He provides for them. He gives food and water. But here in this instance, God is working, but he's working through his people. Hold your place here and go to Romans chapter 5. Start with me at verse 20, but we want to look at, at verse 21, and then we're going to jump to Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. Paul says in Romans 5, 20 and 21, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then notice what he says in verse 21. So that just as sin reigned or ruled in death, even so, or in the same way, would, uh, would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What, according to Paul in verse 21 there, what is ruling and reigning? Grace is. Grace is God's gift. It's what God has done. God's grace is ruling on behalf of His people. But then notice in chapter 6, Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then skip ahead to verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Who is he talking to? 
when he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He's talking to us. 521, grace is ruling and reigning in and through Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, because the authority and power of God over sin has been established and has been given to you as a gift, therefore, you, you, Christian, do not let sin rule and reign over you. This, this is the Christian life. This is what our life is in this moment, in this time, until the Lord finally sets all this to right and eradicates sin completely. We are a people who, like the Israelites in Exodus, have been set free from our previous life of sin and the slavery that held us bound. But by God's power in Jesus Christ, there is a new deliverer who has come to lead his people out of that old life and to give us a new life that we are enjoying right now. And precisely because the effort and the work of that better Moses, Jesus Christ, has defeated sin, has conquered it, and has set up a gracious reign in the midst of his people, Paul can say, therefore, sin ought not to be gaining victory over you. Why is Israel going to be safe and secure in spite of the fact that she has enemies who are seeking to do her in? How do we know that Amalek is not going to undo God's work? Because it's God's work. Because to undo God's work gives the impression that there is someone or something greater than God, and there is not anyone or anything that can do that. But precisely because the battle has already been won, precisely because victory has already been accomplished in a decisive defeat of the enemy, God says, now you, my people, you go out. You wage war. You do battle against those forces that are arrayed against you. Sorry, it's, it's not the message. All right? It's, it's the wire. So here you are, Christian. Here you are wrestling with, day in and day out, those forces, whether in flesh and blood people, or probably more likely than not, the greatest challenges and forces that you face are sinful desires and temptations and the enemy that wages war against you. Right? This is your life. This is what it means to be brought out of there so that you can be brought in to the kingdom. There's a lot of traveling and journeying and fighting and laboring between there and there. So what will you do when you find yourself being plagued once again by outside thoughts that are attacking your mind? What are you going to do when you find corrupt desires trying to gain a foothold in your heart? Don't, don't. Sit passively by and say, well, if God wants to deal with this, He will. Don't do that. No. You say, God has already dealt with this. Therefore, I will stand up and fight. You are not a slave to sin. You are not bound. You are not the victim in all of this. You are the one who has been destined to be the victor and to rule and reign with Christ. And as an opportunity for you and I to grow in our confidence that God will one day, in Christ Jesus, set everything to rights, He gives us the privilege 
of encountering short-term, brief, momentary conflict in this life in which He gives us the victory through our efforts of faith and obedience to say, see, see, just one more example. I'm still ruling. I'm still reigning. These people, these forces, these things even interior to you, they are not running the show here. I am, and I am giving you the victory. Therefore, you can know that these small little victories that may seem so insignificant and trivial are all just pieces along the way to that great final victory where we enter into the promised land. And we enjoy our rest. All of the rest that God has in store for His people will be sweeter for the struggle now. If you want to enjoy much of Christ in the life to come, begin to enjoy life with Christ now. So God secures victory for His people. It's because of His power and because of His purpose that His people are guaranteed to win, although they do, in fact, go out and do the fighting. It's God who is at work in them to accomplish this. Number three. As a way to demonstrate the significance of this kind of conflict, we read in verses 14 through 16. We're back in Exodus. Verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You see what's happened here? Amalek, whether she realizes it or not, the Amalekites go and they do battle with Israel. God looks at that and says, their battle with Israel is a battle against me. They have not made themselves an enemy of Israel. That not, not ultimately. What they have done is made themselves an enemy of me. Therefore, because I so identify with my people, anyone who would oppose my people will be found opposing me. And the second thing that comes out is that in this writing it down, the statement is made that I will have war, I will have battle with Amalek from generation to generation. So on the one hand, God has determined that he is going to take it upon himself to do battle with the enemy of his people. And yet, on the other hand, the victory that he will accomplish is not going to be an immediate victory. God could just as easily intervene in this episode, and totally destroy and annihilate the Amalekites. But for whatever reason, he chooses not to. Listen, this is one of the great challenges in our life, right? The fact that the things that trip us up continue to remain, that in and of itself so often plagues our faith. Because we view that as not gaining true victory, so long as those things or those people or circumstances or desires are still there hassling me and afflicting me. I haven't truly experienced victory, and yet God is saying here that what is going to characterize life from this point on is His settled opposition to the Amalekites and the threat that they pose to His people. If God is ultimately, in His choosing and in His time, going to blot out the memory of the Amalekites, then Israel has to patiently 
wait and trust that God is going to bring that to fruition. And so it is with all of your sin and all of the opposition and all of the forces that we face as God's people. His promise to sustain us and to keep us is not necessarily a promise that these things will be taken away immediately. Rather, it is a promise and a guarantee that so long as we continue to do battle with these things, that He is for us and against the opposition that would threaten to undo us, and that He will see to it that ultimately all of these battles give way to victory. Hold your place here and go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see. Does that sound like what we just heard in Exodus? God says to Moses, Moses, write down in a book for Joshua to be reminded that I will have war and battle with Amalek from generation to generation. John says, I heard a voice tell me, write down in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then listen, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were, like, were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire." His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Write in a book, John, the things that you're going to see and hear. The things that you're going to see in here, John, are the, is the fact that I'm saying, the Lord is saying, I will sustain my people from age to age, from generation to generation, in any sort of conflict that they encounter, through any opposition. And the guarantee of that, write it down in a book, John, is that John turns and he sees the one who has won the victory for his people. He sees Jesus Christ. Write it in a book, John, so that in 2022, these Gentiles at Edgewood Baptist can look and be reminded of the fact that the Lord is the one who is fighting for them. Write it in a book, John, Paul, Peter, James. Write it in a book That through the death of my Son, through the death of Christ, victory has been won for the people of God. When we come to this table this morning, part of what it is that we celebrate is that realization. We know that in here, for a moment at least, hopefully, if God is so gracious, we have a moment of rest and sanity that says God is the one working in our midst and He is going to bring all this to completion. But we know that out there, there is no rest. There is no sanity. And part of what we do when we gather together and we share this meal together is that we remind ourselves of two things. One, that the victory has already been assured because of the settled death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And that because Christ has ascended on high and he looks over and watches over his people as they do battle in a world that is hostile to them, he says, I will provide for their every need. I will feed them. I will sustain them. I will keep them alive another day until it's time for me to bring them home. This is what he has given to you and to me. Men, would you come forward, please, to distribute the elements? We would ask, as the elements pass, first with the bread and then with the cup, that if you are not a member of God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, that you would just simply allow these plates to pass by you, not as an attempt on our part to embarrass or shame you, but just simply as a recognition. Thank you, men. You can begin to make your way once you have it. As a recognition that this is a covenant meal set aside especially for God's people. Hold the bread when you receive it, and we'll partake of it together in just a moment. In Luke chapter 24, verse 50, as Jesus is preparing to ascend on high to his Father, Luke says, He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. So long as Moses had hands raised, signifying God's favor with his people, God's presence with them, the battle was certain and the outcome was secure. And here at the end of Luke's account of the life of Jesus, before he goes to the Father, we're told that Jesus raises his hands and pronounces a settled, firm blessing on his people. So that Paul can say later in Romans chapter 8, in spite of all of this, we overwhelmingly 
conquer through him who loved us. Because Christ gave his body so that we could gain life and victory, take and eat. Father, how we thank you that you have given us through the death of your own son new life and the promise that we will one day experience and see full victory over the sin that so easily entangles us and all of the forces that are arrayed against us. Help us to live in joy in light of that faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Men, if you would come forward to distribute the cup. We read, when he, Jesus, had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So as you take and drink from this, keep in mind that one of the promises that God has made to his people is that Jesus Christ himself will one day signify his victory over the kingdoms of this world by allowing us to sit and eat and drink with him in his kingdom. Take and drink. Father, we thank you that we are safe and secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In the offering up of his own body to the point of death on a cross, our debt has been paid. And because of his resurrection, we know that new life has been secured for us. Help us to walk in that faith, to continue to struggle and strive and even fight against sin, against the forces of this world that would seek to undermine 
your people and the church, but to do so with quiet, simple grace and confidence that the battle belongs to the Lord. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, we do want to respond as we close the service with worship, uh, with not worship, but well, yeah, absolutely worship, but through song, worship through song. And so I've made a change, just in case anybody up here doesn't know. We're going to take it at 40, measure 48, Behold Our God. At the end, we're going to sing at the bridge, You will reign forever, let your glory fill the earth. Let that be our, our uh, song today. Let that be our plea. Through everything we've seen today, His glory, uh, His glory is is ever present, and let His glory be known among among the whole earth, among the world. So let's stand and close with praise. with 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We do encourage you to fellowship amongst one another. I know there is a special young lady that has a birthday, Miss Betty Rowland. So let her know you appreciate her and appreciate uh, that God made her in uh, his own image. And so God bless. Have a great holiday weekend. <laughs>